Well, this week uh, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and as we come to this section, man, it's cold in here. As we come to this section, it's cold in here. I got to get warmed up. We should do jumping jacks or something for just a minute. I'll make you do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. We're going we're gonna to be warm. Um, we, we come to this, and, and, and if you remember from last week, we went through chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, where we found Hannah in that situation of significant sorrow. So she was uh, bitter, she was forlorn, and she was in that condition because while there was a flourishing life all around her, not only in the place she lived, but in her own family, while there was flourishing life all around her, Hannah uh, wasn't able to have a children. Uh, have a child which she desired so badly. And, and even for Hannah, just uh, not only at a personal level, but given the cultural and also theological implications of that, of that um, situation there for the ancient Hebrews, having a child was of extraordinary significance and Hannah uh, was barren. She was unable to have children. And along with that, uh, she was also in this situation of persistent agony because to compound her personal sorrow, uh, her rival by the name of Panina, uh, Panina had many children, and Panina regularly worked to hurt Hannah further by tormenting Hannah because she hadn't had any children. And, and so, like we saw last week, as a result, in that context, uh, Hannah was miserable. She describes herself in chapter 1, verse 16, as being in anguish and being resentful. Um, and in that condition, Hannah responds in, in a way that, that ultimately can only be described as, as righteously commendable, because uh, instead of, of uh, the letting that resentment and bitterness get the better of her and, and lashing out at those around her, instead of uh, deciding that because she's in the context and the situation that she's in, she's, she's just going to stop trusting God. He clearly isn't doing things the way she'd like them to be done. No, but instead of both those alternatives, she instead goes to God in prayer. Um, she does come before God very honestly, like we saw last week. She even describes her condition as being one of, of hardness of soul, so she's coming before God in her bitterness, um, but in prayer she asks the Lord for a son, promising that if she has this son, she'll return him uh, to the service of the Lord at the temple there uh, with Eli in Shiloh. And so like we saw last week as the narrative goes on, uh, Hannah not only found some immediate relief just in that act of prayer itself, it's amazing to notice that that's where her countenance really changed after she unburdened herself before the Lord in prayer, uh, she found relief uh, in that event. Uh, but then as time went on, the Lord was merciful to her and she had a son uh, who she then named Samuel. And just as she promised, she uh, brought Samuel then when he got a little older to serve the Lord at Shiloh uh, with, with Eli the prophet. So, so last week, as we think about what we studied there, we saw how Hannah moved from pain to prayer to peace, ultimately to this place of having her prayer answered in an amazing way. Um, we saw there that, that as she asked of the Lord, the Lord is the one who gives, which is an amazing truth that we're mindful of as we pray. And, and today, as the narrative continues, we now have another prayer from Hannah. And this one is a prayer, it's almost more of a song. Um, it's, this, it's this great poem of, of Hannah's rejoicing before the Lord because the Lord has heard her prayer and given her this son Samuel. And so she's, she's exultant. She's rejoicing in the fact that God has been so kind to her. And uh, so here she is back uh, at Shiloh. Her, her boy Samuel, he, he's now old enough in order that uh, she can fulfill her, her vow and bring him back to the Lord's service there. She's in, in the uh, temple area there where Eli the priest uh, serves. And in that place of worship, she offers this, this second prayer. And uh, as we come to this study of, of Hannah's second prayer this morning, we discover that, 
that there's a certain theme that runs through Hannah's prayer. It's a theme that underpins the joy that she's expressing here, and that Hannah has personally come to experience how the Lord brings joyful relief to those who are feeble and forlorn. In fact, if we were to have her prayer, maybe in a daily prayer book that we use for our own devotions or something like that, that could be the heading at the top of the page. Rejoicing because the Lord brings relief to the feeble and forlorn. And as we look at how Hannah frames her prayer, we can note that not only is this something uh, reflecting the way God has worked in Hannah's life personally, but what we also see is that Hannah notes this is how God works generally or regularly in the world around us. This is a tendency of the Lord's to uh, work for the uplifting of those who are brought down. And not only that in a general sense, but this is actually a way that God works ultimately and climactically uh, through His anointed King, uh, which we'll see by the time we get to, to verse 10. And so put all this together, the Lord brings relief uh, to those who are feeble and forlorn, and we work through this prayer today, and as we do, we can be helped very much just in thinking about the immediate cir circumstances of God's kindness to us in our own condition. Uh, being feeble and forlorn is something we can identify with for a variety of reasons, whether it be uh, physical circumstances we find ourselves in, whether it be emotional or relational circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, it can be spiritual seasons of, of, of a sense of, of downcastness of heart. Uh, a number of different experiences can bring us to recognize our own weakness and our own lowness. And what Hannah gives to us here is a wonderful picture of what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord knowing that He does bring relief to us in those experiences of life very often. But not only that, He provides a kind of climactic relief that despite the, uh, the dark clouds that may gather around our lives, we do have this future and ongoing hope that's centered in the, in the uh, climactic work of God's King, which of course sets, a, sets an important uh, uh, context for us as we think about 1 Samuel, because the people of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel during this time, are in general a forlorn and downcast people. They're far from God. We know from the end of Judges that there was no king in the land, and so the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. It's a situation of spiritual chaos and disaster in Israel. What they need is the renewing hope that comes ultimately through God's king, and that's something that we'll see play out as a theme in Samuel, uh, but it's something even here that Hannah recognizes as affecting her life at a very personal level. And so uh, we'll think through this just in those uh, three movements as we work through Hannah's prayer today. Uh, first of all, we'll see how Hannah's uh, rejoicing because the Lord brings relief to the feeble and forlorn. He's done that for her personally. And then we'll look in verses uh, 3 to 9 how the Lord does that generally. And then in verse 10, we'll see how the Lord uh, does that ultimately in a, in a climactic sense. And so first of all, verses 1 and 2, you can look there. Uh, if you have a Bible to open on your phone, or we actually put Bibles out at the back table, you're welcome to grab one of those um, and, uh, and follow along as we study. Uh, the first thing we'll notice is that, is that Hannah's experienced this very relieving kindness of God in a personal way. So verses 1 and 2, uh, we especially see the personal nature of this, at least, in verse 1, uh, where if you look at the text, you see how Hannah repeats this word, my, four different times in that first verse. So she's coming before God in prayer, and she says, My heart, my horn, my mouth boasts over my enemies. My, 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 is what Hannah is saying there. Very personal. Um, and we hear all those my's, and we might think, first of all, that Hannah's a bit self-centered as things begin. 
Uh, she's, she seems strangely focused on, our, on herself at first pass. That's an awful lot of mys uh, to include in one verse of prayer. However, as we reflect further, we see that Hannah's words aren't consumed by a selfish level of interest per se, but instead they actually reflect her very personal experience of divine relief, which is where she's focusing uh, her own her own words in prayer as we as we see how she how she states things. So so my heart, she says, rejoices in the Lord. It's interesting there, isn't it, that she doesn't just say my heart rejoices because things are now like I wanted them to be. No, my heart rejoices in the Lord. She's she's recognizing that there is a shift in her innermost being as the Lord has come and been her helper. Back in chapter 1, we actually read how Hannah's heart was described by that Hebrew word for vexed or bad. She had a bad heart as she was sitting there in the bitterness of her situation. But but now things have changed and that her heart is filled with joy because of what the Lord has done for her. And, And then she moves on to say her horn is lifted up by the Lord which is poetic imagery in Hebrew poetry um, that, that we can make sense of. A, an animal whose horns are raised up in victory over their rival or, or even over their prey. Hannah's own head has been lifted up in a posture of victory, uh, she's saying. We, we think of the, uh, the difficulty that she endured um, by the, by the uh, constant chiding of Panina, and now her, her own head has been lifted up. She can't be uh, brought down anymore by Panina's... Um, aggressive assaults against her for not being uh, for not being a mother but instead she's now found herself in this victorious position of having having a a child um, which she actually reflects next when she says her mouth boasts over her enemies which which very literally in Hebrew means that my mouth opens wide over my enemies again that's that's an image of a victory there for for animals and their prey that it's actually very vivid language Um, so Hannah uh, she's not bitter anymore she's 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 very uh, happy in what the Lord has done and she's expressing that in vivid ways um, in in order ultimately that she can make this case uh, make this make this point that her condition of hopelessness and weakness has now been uh, relieved as she's had this uh, child that she was longing for and so in the end of verse 1 we read that ultimately Hannah is now rejoicing in the Lord's salvation uh, he's rescued her, he's come to her in her bitter circumstances, and he's brought her uh, this kind of relief that she's been, she's been pleading for. So she rejoices in this personal relief from the Lord, and then as Hannah rejoices in this relief, we see uh, that she does so not just by speaking directly about it, here's what the Lord has done for me, but she also acknowledges the true character and nature of the God who helped her, as, as we see there in verse 2. So so she speaks of God's holiness in the first part of verse 2 there. If you see that, there's no one holy like the Lord, she says. So so she's acknowledging the the transcendent perfection and otherness of God. He's he's entirely pure, and she recognizes that that there's not one thing profane or, or desecrated or improper, not only about who He is, but about the way in which He works. He He exists and acts in a kind of unmitigated, sacred perfection. Which, which we can't help but remember includes the fact that according to God's purposes, Hannah knows he had once closed her womb, like we read in chapter 1. The God of holiness and perfect purposes had, had closed her womb, but now he's, he's opened her womb, she's had a child. So, so there's no one holy like the Lord, Hannah, Hannah uh, is, is stating here. He's perfect in who he is, he's perfect in his intentions and actions, hard as they may be to understand at times. And then Hannah also says that there's no one besides you, and there's no rock like our God. 
Now, that's very significant for her to say because we know she lived uh, in the land promised by God to Abraham for his descendants. So Hannah is now living in the promised land of Canaan uh, with the people of Israel there. But we also know that during this time, uh, Hannah didn't just live in the land promised by God, but she also lived in a land that was, in a sense, overrun by alternatives to God. Uh, There were the idols of the Philistines and so on readily available. It was a great snare for Israel there. All these these other idols that could be worshipped and and trusted in. And so access to the worship, uh, for example, in Hannah's case, access to the worship of of a fertility god like Baal or the Asherah, that would have been very present and available for Hannah. She lived where alternatives to trusting the true and living God uh, were all around her. And no doubt she faced circumstances that might very well have tempted her to pursue those idolatrous alternatives. After, after all, in the, in, the, uh, in the circumstances that she's facing, in those hard kind of circumstances, we know this ourselves, it's so easy to look for alternative solutions to merely trusting and humbling ourselves before the true God. It's very easy to look for alternative solutions in the midst of hard circumstances. And yet Hannah, she didn't look to those alternatives. And now on the other side of God's rescuing work, she affirms again what has actually underscored her perseverance all through her time of hardship. She's saying there's no one like Yahweh. There's no one like the covenant, promise-keeping God of Israel. And she says there's no rock like our God. That imagery of God is our rock. In verse 2, she actually copies that from a song that Moses sang in Deuteronomy where where he sings about the idols of the land being like rocks that ultimately can offer no refuge. Uh, We think of of, of a siege in battle or a situation where you're hiding in the rocks to find safety. Uh, Moses is singing about how how there are these idols in the land. They offer ultimately no no refuge, no, no safety there. And Moses sings, but their rock is not our rock. Uh, their rock is not the living and uh, true God who does offer refuge, who does offer security, who is the one who's powerful enough to save and preserve us. And Hannah's confessing that now from her own experience very firsthand. While alternatives to trusting in the Lord uh, abounded around her, ultimately she knows there's no stability, there's no security, there's no safety or power to rescue in any alternative to the living and true God. And so she offers this prayer. She offers this prayer uh, starting from a place of her own experience personally. She's she's not only rejoicing in the Lord's relief in her forlorn uh, condition that has now been uh, brought to this wonderful place of joy, but she's also confessing that in her whole experience, she recognizes her life aligns with the holy and sovereign purposes of God. His way is true. His way stands. He's the one who is sacred, and He's the one who ultimately uh, can make things secure. Which is really something when you stop and, and consider the depths of Hannah's reflection here, because Hannah's view, this is not the Lord who serves her, uh, does not reflect a small understanding of the Lord. This is, this is not the Lord who serves her purposes when the days are, are sunny and going her way. She knows the Lord to be the one who presides over both her dark days and her days of relief as the God who can continually and steadily be trusted. He, he's her rock. Which is really one thing to say on the other side of God's deliverance and expressions of His kindness to us. But we know from last week that Hannah has been consistent with this posture before God. And in her anguish and sorrow, 
He's the one that she still turned to. Even before Samuel was born, you remember how she'd found relief merely in humbling herself before this living and true God in prayer. Not, not because her prayer was immediately answered, but because in the context of continuing pain, the Lord had granted her the peace that she needed as she called out to Him. So, so Hannah, was, she's not just a worshiper on sunny days. She knows the Lord who's the rock on those darker days too. And so she praises Him along these lines. She's recognizing his consistent expression of sovereign care over her life. There's no one holy but you. There's no one besides you. There's no other rock. What would it be like for us as we face those situations where things became very low? And then as we, as we came out and we're in this place of great rejoicing, just to make that the way we began our prayer with some regularity before the living God. There's no one holy but you. Before anything else, oh Lord, I just want to make sure this is, this is confessed by my mouth. There's no one holy but you. There's no one besides you. I'm not looking to any alternatives, and there's no other rock. It's an amazing confession of faith that's there. Some of you will have read uh, Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. If you haven't read that, it can be your homework for the week. Um, it's, it's a wonderful book. But, but in that book, she includes a poem, and I think, if memory serves, the author of the poem is unknown. Um, but, but the title of the poem is The Weaver. And maybe, maybe you've heard it. It's, it's reflecting on God's weaving the circumstances of our life together. And the poem is short enough. I'll read it to you. It goes like this. It goes like this. My wife. Uh, wow, my wife. I saw my wife. She's there. This is not what this poem is about, though. My life is but a weaving between the Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. Now listen to this verse. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. No thing this truth can dim. He gives his very best to those who leave the choice with him. I think Hannah would have liked that poem because she knows days there were dark threads in the weaver's skillful hands in her life. The Lord had closed her womb. Those were very dark threads in her life. But in her personal experience, she had also been able to see the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned, as the poem says. Through her anguish, she was driven to prayer, and in answer to that prayer, the Lord had brought her a son. And so personally, Hannah's experienced the fact that the Lord brings relief to the weak and needy. The dark threads woven through life are not indicators that the Lord's not active, which is just something uh, that, that we need to be very aware of ourselves. Those dark threads that are worn through our life that, that we can feel so weighty and so uh, drawn down by, those are not indicators that God is not present in our life. They're just indicators that His purposes can be above and beyond our understanding of these things. Certainly that was the case in Hannah's life, which she's come now to this point of rejoicing as she recognizes that. And, and probably even as we think about Hannah's personal experience here, we can recount some spirit, uh, personal experiences just along these same lines where, where the Lord may have weaved some dark threads in the tapestry of our life, but through His holy and, and steadfast sovereign craftsmanship, 
He has brought us to places of unique experiences of grace and joy as a result, even, as, as, as a, even in the midst of those darker times. And we reflect on our own lives like Hannah, like, like people like Corey Tim Boom. The, the, there are those dark seasons, but we know the personal and refreshing kindness of God. He brings relief to the feeble and forlorn. It could, it could be those, those economic seasons of hardship in our life. It could be all kinds of different things we're going through, whether they be emotional or spiritual or relational, those kinds of things. But we, we sit even here this morning, we sit here having been preserved by God, not only in the midst of those things, but through those things. Hannah knows God to be the one who brings up those who are low. And as we reflect on the tapestry of our own life, we know this to be true as well. And it's this kind of truth that can help us through those next uh, periods of difficulty reflecting on God's kindness to us historically. He's the one who has preserved us. He's the one who will preserve us. There is no other rock. And as Hannah continues to pray, she actually reflects the fact that God hasn't, hasn't just done this for her personally, but she wants to move out from that and recognize this is how God does things generally. This is a typical pattern for God as He deals with people in the world that He's made, this, this bringing up those who are low and bringing down those who seem so high and mighty. This way the Lord cares for Hannah, it reflects a pattern or a tendency with God's actions, which we now see in verses 3 to 9 where Hannah works this out. And we'll just uh, give, give, a, give a cursory reading of it here, but, but we can notice all the way through. Uh, verse 3, she praises God as she in effect rebukes those who arrogantly boast because ultimately the Lord is the one who has all knowledge. And with that knowledge, what what does He do with that? Well, He knows the proud hearts of those who live out of arrogant self-reliance. In fact, it's it's His knowledge of proud hearts that's actually made evidence by the reversals He's now going to work through the rest of this passage in various lives. So just look at all these reversals the Lord works. Verse 4, warriors' bows are broken, but feeble are clothed with strength. So so those who seem so strong and and put together uh, by worldly standards, God shatters them. But those who are low and apparently in hopeless conditions, for them the Lord brings this extraordinary support. And and then then, uh, God works a reversal in in terms of of the full and the hungry as well in verse 5, where the full ultimately find themselves desperate for food, but the starving, uh, by God's help, they hunger no more. And then in the rest of verse 5, which is exactly Hannah's experience here in the lives of the the childless. So the barren gives birth to seven, Hannah says, but the woman with many sons pines away. Uh, So so that number seven, that of course can be quite the the, the trick for uh, commentators to start sorting through. And there's all kinds of of, of different opinions on the matter. Uh, Why is she talking about seven? We know from verse 23, I believe it is. Uh, maybe 21, you can read a little further down in chapter 2. Hannah ultimately has six kids, so Samuel and five others. I think three, three boys and two girls or something like that. Um, uh, so she doesn't even have seven. So why in the world is this seven here? Uh, what, what do we do with that? But we do remember from our studies in chapter 1 last week, and as we think back through the, the, the Hebrew Scripture, seven is that number of completeness. Uh, seventh day was God's day of rest from His creation. Last week we saw in chapter 1 that there were seven asks 
in the Hebrew text, as well as seven gives in the Hebrew text. The complete asking from God uh, ultimately yields a complete giving from God. It was a wonderful picture we have there. And even here in this hymn of praise to Yahweh, now she speaks about how the one who has no children is given seven children. It's a picture of completeness here, of Yahweh's gift to her. In fact, the name Yahweh itself is, is uh, referenced seven times here in the song in chapter 2. There's a perfection and a completeness to the way God works. And Hannah knows that very personally. Here she is at this time with just one son. But in a sense, that's the completeness of what God has done for her. And, and, for, and for those like Penina who lived this life of kind of antagonistic arrogance uh, while the one with children, well, she, she pines away. She's in, in a state completely removed uh, from, the, from the realized blessing of God. And so Hannah's working out these reversals that the Lord gives. And then there's another one in verse 6 where the Lord uh, brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and He raises others up. On the one hand, that, that language about sending down to Sheol, which is the, the place of the dead, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, that, that's a way that the psalmist will sometimes speak about being really, really sick. So it's like I'm down to Sheol because, I, feel, I mean, you know, you get a cold and you feel like, well, I'm going to die. Uh, the psalmist uses that language figuratively uh, sometimes. But, but more often than not, there's a, there's a very uh, direct correlation between Sheol and the place of death and judgment and the counterpart to that, which, of course, is the God who gives life and doesn't leave His people to perish in death, which is what Hannah's referencing here. It's very clear just from the, from, from the contrast she sets up. Some down, go down to Sheol. He raises others up. This is the giving of life that the parallelism is indicating. And so, and so to read this properly here, clearly Hannah's thinking in bigger categories than mere physical sickness. There's, there's resurrection anticipation here in the fullest sense. Which again, you start studying this and some will say, well, there's no real indicators of, 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 of resurrection like this at this point in the Old Testament. We don't want to read the Old Testament uh, like we just came from an Easter Sunday service. Of course, uh, they didn't know about all this back then and all that, to which we have to say that's a bunch of garbage. Hannah absolutely knows about this. Hannah absolutely knows about the God who promises to give life to those who are all the way down in the throes of death. That's the Genesis 3 promise that we looked at from the very beginning. The Lord's going to send the one who will crush evil, and that curse of death is not going to be final. We think of, we think of that strange episode in Genesis chapter 5, where we have Enoch, who's surrounded by all these people who die, but yet Enoch is brought up into the presence of God. He was no more, for God took him. We think of Elijah and Elisha's miracles of raising uh, sons from the dead and these kinds of things. The Lord is the one who brings death and He gives life. This is not uh, something that's read with a kind of improper uh, attachment to Easter Sunday morning. This is something that we need to read pointing forward to the reality of Sunday morning. This hope is there for us all through the Scriptures. That the dead who, who die, those who die in faith, that's not the final word for them. The great contrast God works is that death doesn't win, but we are raised to life again, ultimately through the finished work of Christ. And so Hannah's reflecting on that even here. Even death isn't, the, isn't, isn't, isn't victorious over God's reversing power. And, and so we, we have that and we reflect on that. And then, and then in verses 7 and 8, the Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles, He exalts. The poor get raised from the trash heap and are brought up to a place of honor. And then we could spend time on that, but we see that even in the news, don't we? We're reading our news feed. Someone who was once so high and influential and, and how many followers must they have had on Instagram and how much money and how many houses and all these things. And we open our news feed and what do we see? Well, there they are walking into the courtroom for their sentencing. 
the proud, the arrogant, the high and exalted according to the world's standards, down they go in the disasters of sin and these things. And so, and so Hannah is just reflecting all of these things. Uh, the high go down, the low are brought up. Um, and, then, and then in verse 8, uh, it's not just that the Lord is the one who does this. But in verse 8, Hannah makes it very clear that the Lord is the one who has rights to do this. Because the foundations of the earth belong to Him. The pillars of the earth are His. So, so this is really an ownership statement. The Lord operates in this way, this way of bringing reversal, this way of bringing relief to those who are, who are so down and dejected and, and, uh, and all those kinds of things. The Lord operates in this way out of His holiness and strength because He has rights to the world He made. He holds things up and this is how things will go in His world. Down go the proud and up go the humble. So the kingdom of God we see even, even here in the beginning of Samuel, which is a book about kingdoms. The kingdom of God is a reversal of the kingdom of man, which is actually something that Samuel is going to have to learn along the way as he starts, as, as he's the one who God uses to establish the monarchy in Israel, first with Saul and then with David. You remember ultimately when, when Samuel goes to find David, Saul, of course, he was, he was very tall and handsome and all these things, but he fouled out, down go the proud. Samuel goes to find, find the next king, and he's supposed to go to Jesse's house, and Jesse has the sons all lined up. And, and who does Samuel think? Who does Jesse think is going to be the one? Well, probably the oldest and handsomest and biggest. He's going to be the one. In fact, he doesn't even bother to bring the youngest, smallest one in from the field because it's clearly not going to be that, that little guy, not, not little David. But who is it? Who does God raise up? Well, the youngest, the smallest, that's going to be the one. He's the one who has a heart after my own heart. And up goes the, up goes the least of these into the place of prominence. This is how God works in His kingdom. And we're being prepared for that, not just in Samuel, but to understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of Christ. This is how things go in Christ's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's not the high and mighty. It's not the ones who have had it all together. It's not the ones who are so prominent according to worldly standards that ultimately have hearts that turn toward God in a way that brings salvation. More often than not, it's those who are low, those who feel their need, those who have suffered hardship and find themselves assured that the only hope there really is is in the person and work of the great humbled servant, the Lord Jesus. And so the Lord brings relief to the feeble and forlorn. It's, it's the world's standards in reverse. In verse 9, she goes on to say, The Lord guards the steps of His faithful one, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. And there's the principle. Are we going to prevail because we're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, because our plans are the way things must be, because we're so insightful, because we have things figured out, because our program is going to be the one that works, all these kinds of things? No, we're not going to prevail based on our own strength. Instead, we're going to prevail by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, even if we find ourselves doing so like Hannah did with a bitter and very troubled heart. Oh, Lord, you must be the one who brings me relief. This is the one whom the Lord will guide. This is the one whom the Lord will guard and this is the one uh, ultimately who will stand by his grace which again all aligns with Hannah's personal experience she didn't prevail in her own strength and and so and so Hannah pans out from that personal experience to speak about how God works generally we can see this around us she's saying our own experiences are included in this in the lives of God's people we can be in very low points again and again and again and we find ourselves in deep need calling out to God in prayer and how many of us have had these experiences being 
poor in, poor in spirit, poor in finances, poor in, in, in relationships, poor in health, all of these kinds of uh, situations we can find ourselves in. We call out, and here we are today, having been preserved by the God who answers, the God who gives and is kind to us. Now, uh, it should be said that interpreting this kind of truth correctly is very important. We, we do say this is how God works generally. And, and we use that word generally on purpose. Because in prayers like this, or we see this often in Psalms or in Proverbs, these are very black and white generalizations that are, that are regularly made. This is how the Lord works generally. This, this is what He does. He brings the proud down. He lifts the hopeless up. This is how God works most of the time. But, but these are generalities. Some, sometimes the arrogant stay high and mighty for their whole life. We know that as we look at the world around us. Sometimes the oppressed stay low for their whole life. We know that as we look at the world around us. With the knowledge of our, of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history and the hardships we, we, we've, we know that they endured, how could we ignore that fact? Even with the knowledge of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in current circumstances right now in the world, which can be horrific, we know sometimes the most faithful in Christ are low and are brought even as low as a martyr's death in the end. Sometimes the arrogant just seem to keep standing. You just think about the world. We know the Lord raises up the low so often, but we, but, we, but we also see how there are those who are faithful to the Lord and are, and are horrifically treated, and that can go on. So in this life, the Lord brings relief to the feeble and forlorn generally, but not entirely. And so we can appreciate Hannah's prayer here. We can appreciate the, the fact that because the Lord has brought relief to her hopeless situation in a very personal way, that she does reflect on how this is a, a, a manner in which we see a tendency of God's kindness in the world around us. He works these reversals. He does this generally. But at the same time, there are still plenty of, this, of these situations as the world goes around where it just doesn't seem like this is the case. Where those dark threads of the tapestry don't seem to be offset by the gold and silver pattern as we see it. And so what then? What do we do with that? Well, Hannah's mindful of this uh, because we see reflected in her prayer that she's not only rejoicing because the Lord has brought relief to her in weakness personally, and she not only praises God because He brings relief to the feeble and forlorn generally, but she ends her prayer here in verse 10 recognizing that we still wait for this relief to be something that God works Ultimately, we see that in verse 10. Ultimately, what will be the case for humanity in relationship to the Lord? Well, here it is, verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered, full stop. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge not just some of the wicked. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. There's a day coming. And along with that, what else is going on? Well, the Lord will give power to His King. He will lift the horn of His anointed. So, so here Hannah is not merely anticipating the monarchy of Israel in the sense that the Lord will, will bring them a king. You know, David's going to come down the way in a little bit and he's going to save Israel from the, the Philistine problem that keeps on plaguing them, that kind of thing. In a bigger sense, in a, in a the Lord will judge the ends of the earth sense, Hannah knows that God's going to work in such a way that there are ultimately only two courses for humanity. There's either be shattered, opposed to the Lord, or be aligned with the victory of His anointed king. 
Because just like Hannah's horn was lifted up in her own personal victory back in verse 1, so also here, verse 10, there's going to be this anointed one from God who is victorious, whose horn is raised, having power that extends to the end of the earth. We understand this isn't just a promise of, of David. David was never that full and complete in his, in, his, in, his, in his monarchy. Solomon wasn't either for that matter. This is a promise of a greater king. It's ultimately a promise of, uh, that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The one who's, who's now come and brought us rescue for our sin. We know that's true for us in Christ. But he's also the one who's going to come again to bring the title, kind of total and complete relief to those who find themselves feeble and forlorn, trusting in the God who is our rock. This is what he'll do finally. And Hannah's looking out forward to the climactic reality of that. And so we get to the end of this prayer here, and we need to see just the joyful trajectory of praise that Hannah's offering here. It's, it's an amazing trajectory that she lays out in terms of her worship, and it is, it is very critically instructional for us how she does things here. Because you see how she can move from her own experience of God's kindness toward her to see how God works generally, and then ultimately to look at how He's going to work ultimately in all of these things. And so, and, so, and so for us, as we put this together in our own lives and how this applies to the immediacy of, our, of, our, of those, those darker threads that can be weaved through our lives, or maybe it's a particular season of joy, as we think about this, Hannah trains us to consider the immediacy of our circumstances, not just as solitary events of God's kindness, but actually those events that compel us forward to look at the way God works more broadly and more ultimately. As I rejoice in the immediacy of my own circumstances. The horn is lifted up in whatever way it might be. God's expressions of unique relief in, in my life in, in this season or for whatever, it might, for whatever reason I might have needed help and there's relief in that. Hannah trains us to look from that to that more climactic and ultimate work that the Lord has done. This is just a picture of God's kindness that's going to find a greater and much more full expression in the return of the, of the coming king. There's a connection that's being made there. One, one commentator, uh, I thought, gave a very helpful illustration along these lines, uh, so, so I'll share it with you. He, he, he equates what's going on in this prayer to the relationship between a wife's wedding ring and her husband's love. So, so the wedding ring is, is a picture of the husband's love. It, it, has, it has value, just being what it is, but it's not the full expression of his love. It's just a small symbol of that fullness. And they go on to make the connection, so too in our Christian lives, that there are wonderful expressions of God's kindness to us. So maybe relief from sickness, relief from, from financial strain, the relief from relationship pressures, that there are wonderful micro-expressions, if we can call them that, of God's kindness to us. And we value those just like the wife values the ring her husband has given her. But, but those kindnesses from God, they come to us in the now only as small pictures. They, they just represent uh, the, the, the much grander significance of what is there for us ultimately from God. The full expressions of the husband's love is not the ring. At least it better not be just the ring. The full expression of the husband's love is going to be a commitment to his wife. The full expression of God's kindness to us is not the fact that this week you were really pressed down emotionally and there was great relief that you found as you got down on your knees before God in prayer. The full expression of God's love is not that, though that's a picture of it. The full expression of God's love is a climactic relief that's coming for us in the promised King, in the, in the Messiah who's coming, who will bring an end to all tears and sorrow forever and ever. So, so put this together, we can just be compelled in our context of need, in our context of rejoicing, 
from dwelling so much on the immediacy of our circumstances that we forget to realize the immediacy of those circumstances we we experience are wonderful pointers to a more ultimate and climactic experience of relief that we still look forward to through the coming of the Lord Jesus, this bigger and final uh, reality that awaits us. So we don't have to be bogged down in the immediacy of, oh, if this, if this gets handled, then my life will be okay. And then it gets handled, oh, good, that was, that was what I was worried about. I can move on until the next thing comes, and then here we are again, down, and sorting through that. No, 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 each expression of God's kindness along the way is meant to be a kind of, a kind of ring, a kind of symbol of the ultimate love that He's going to extend to us for all eternity. And so even as we go home this afternoon and we reflect on these things, we can think about that truth. In what ways has God given you those small expressions of His kindness, those those situations of relief, even if it's just that emotional relief like with Hannah at first in chapter 1 where she came before God in prayer and she felt that sense of rest and peace after doing that. And we reflect on those and then we apply it, uh, acknowledging that there's a greater relief that's coming. And this is God uh, just with with a smile upon my life saying, be patient, be patient, because the fullest expression of my love is still there for you in the return of the King. And so we can be thankful for Hannah's prayer and the, and the training that she gives us in our own uh, response to personal circumstances. Uh, we never stay with the my, 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 but we always look forward to what's ultimately coming through Jesus Christ. And so we're helped by this. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that we'd be encouraged by your word. That you'd train our hearts to look from the immediacy of our circumstances, uh, not only uh, thinking about those with a joyful heart, but seeing how they're expressions of your love that will finally be realized fully in the Lord Jesus. We look forward to his return. We're thankful for the significance of the price he paid to reconcile us to you at his cross. And now, O Lord, we desire to have patient and enduring faith. We know there is no other rock but you. You're the one in whom we trust. May that be true of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.